All right, well, we have reached part five in the final sermon in our series on the book of Jonah. And for those of you that maybe have missed uh, prior installments, you can get on YouTube and just search Edmund Adventist, and you can pull up all the past messages there. Um, But if you haven't heard the other ones, it's okay. You won't be too lost today. I will be uh, giving some callbacks, but I think that you will be able to track with us just fine. So if you'd like to follow along with me today, we're going to pick up in Jonah chapter 4. So let's dig right in. Last week, we saw that God forgave Nineveh. He extended extreme mercy and did not bring destruction upon them. And our hero, if we can call him that, Jonah, is left pretty upset, pretty distraught. And in verse 2 of chapter 4, it says, So he, Jonah, prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. And so right here, something interesting is happening because we can sense from Jonah, he's not excited about what he's saying. He's actually quoting from the book of Exodus. Exodus 34, six says this, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. What a beautiful picture of God. Yet Jonah is angered by it. He's angered by this beautiful picture of God. It's like he's saying, you know what, God? I'm fed up with your mercy and your grace You love to forgive people who don't deserve it. I knew this was going to happen, and that's why I ran in the first place. I knew you were going to do this, God. I knew you were going to extend mercy and grace. Jonah is criticizing God for being too nice, too full of love. Wow. Wow. So after chapters two and three of this book, just when you start to think that Jonah has changed, it becomes clear once again that Jonah has lost his mind. He has lost his mind. He's become this ridiculous, over-the-top, comic book-like figure once again. Doesn't he know that he wouldn't even be alive if it wasn't for this grace and mercy coming from God? He would have just sunk into the depths of the sea. And here we come to another dichotomy, because we're face to face with the scandal of God's liberal grace and the wideness of his mercy. Because the fact of the matter is, we are comfortable with God's grace when it is extended to us, but not when it is extended to those who we despise and hate. Let let that sink in. You know, a couple of years back, I preached a sermon on forgiveness. I believe it was entitled 70 Times 7. And at the end of the sermon, I told a story about a guy named Gary Ridgway, and he was the second most prolific serial killer in U.S. history. He was known as the Green River Killer. Maybe you guys are familiar with that name for him. And during the 80s and the 90s, he raped and killed 49 women and girls and dumped their bodies into rivers and forests. 
And at his, his trial, his sentencing, there was a microphone set up. And parents, friends, and family members of his victims came up one after the other to the microphone. And they said some of the nastiest, most hateful things that anybody could say. But I mean, could you really blame them for reacting in this way? I mean, imagine if that was your daughter, your wife, your friend that he had murdered and just dumped like trash. But then this one particular man came up to the microphone and he had a a white beard and a a round belly. He sort of looked like Santa Claus. Here's, Here's a picture of him. But this man came up to the microphone and his eyes were red. They were a little glassy, a a little watery. You could tell that he had been crying. And he said these words, Mr. Ridgeway, um, there are people here that hate you. I am not one of them. You've made it difficult to live up to what I believe. And that is what God says to do. That is to forgive. You are forgiven, sir. Now, this man, Robert Rule, was the father of one of Gary's victims. And there's a video of this on YouTube. And if you pull it up and you watch it, you will see something powerful taking place. Because throughout all of the other angry and impassioned speeches that were taking place, the camera would cut to Gary Ridgway. And he was just sitting there, stone-faced, cold and unmoved. But when this man got up there and he said those words, you are forgiven, sir, Gary Ridgway breaks down into tears. Forgiveness, love, and mercy can soften even the hardest of hearts. Yet Robert Rule, this this gentleman you see on the screen here, he had his distractors. There were people, detractors, sorry. There were people that said, He's just in shock. There were people that said, oh, he's being too soft on this man who murdered his daughter. As if offering love and forgiveness is a sign of mental weakness as opposed to spiritual strength. There are people who ask questions like, how dare you forgive? What kind of father are you to forgive your daughter's murderer? It's as if Robert Rule was the first person to ever take this sort of approach. It's as if Jesus never uttered those words on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. People name their daughters grace. We sing songs about grace and all that. We think grace, mercy, and love are beautiful things, but there is this scandalous side to it when grace and the wideness of God's mercy begins to include those people that we hate those people that we despise. When it includes those people that have wronged us or those people that we think don't deserve grace or forgiveness, then it becomes really, really disturbing, this whole grace thing. And that is exactly what Jonah chapter four is about. Jonah is depicted as ridiculous, yes, But the motivations that are behind Jonah's critiques of God are the same motivations behind Robert Rule's detractors. So let's get back to the story of Jonah. Because in verse four, it says, then the Lord said, is it right for you, Jonah, to be angry? 
God asks this question, how does Jonah respond? He just stonewalls God, right? He just ignores the question, doesn't give an answer, and goes outside of the city to pout. God's like, let's reason about this, Jonah. Is there a legitimate reason for you to feel this way, to feel angry? And Jonah's just like, "Eh, I don't want to talk about it. And he leaves. I don't know about you, but I'm getting maybe some teenage angst uh, from, from Jonah here. He's going to sit and watch what happens to the city. And what does Jonah want to happen to the city? He wants fire to rain down from heaven or something like that, right? Or an earthquake to take place and the whole city fall down or the earth swallow up everybody that's living in it. That's what Jonah wants. And this takes us back to his five word in the Hebrew, that five word sermon in chapter three, this short little sermon. He's angry for numerous reasons, not just because God has shown grace and mercy though, He's angry also because I believe that God has maybe played a little bit of a trick on him, a brilliant trick nonetheless. So going back to that sermon, uh, chapter three, Jonah 3, 4. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, Jonah was commissioned to preach against the wickedness of the city. But what does he fail to mention in this sermon? the city's wickedness or what they're doing wrong, right? He's sent to tell them as prophets usually explain why something terrible is coming, but he doesn't give any reasons why. He doesn't mention it at all. And who does he not mention at all? He doesn't mention Yahweh, right? The God who has sent him to deliver this message, the God that he's supposed to be representing. So now for the, the, the juicy parts about this little trick. So most Bible translations use the word overthrown, destroyed, or overturned here. This is the Hebrew word hafak, hafak. Say, say it with me, hafak, hafak. Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be hafak. Now languages are fun and flexible. I, I love words, they're just, they're very intriguing to me, but they change and they're, they're flexible. They can u- be used different way in different contexts. And so many words in, in English, for example, we're familiar with English. Many words in English have a basic meaning, but then depending upon the context that you use them in, they may have different nuances. So for instance, if I said that I got into a car accident and my car was destroyed, I'd be talking about the physical destruction of my car, right? You you guys would pick up on that. And that would be a negative thing. But what if I said that in 2011, 1,820 people at the Oklahoma State Student Council Convention destroyed the previous world record for most fist bumps at one time. Now, this, this actually happened. This record was broken, destroyed, shattered. Now, is that a bad thing, that record being shattered, destroyed? No, we're we're talking about it in a positive way, and we know that based on the context. So the same word, destroyed, with a different nuance based on the context. This is language, and the same goes with the Hebrew word, hafak. The basic meaning of the word really means to turn over, 
to turn over. For example, the book of Hosea describes Israel as a, a cake or a loaf of bread. Hosea 7, 8. Ephraim, Ephraim is, is just Hebrew terminology talking about the nation of Israel, has mixed himself among the peoples. Ephraim is a cake unturned. So th- this is that word, hafak. If you don't turn the bread and you only cook one side, it's gonna be ruined and you've got to throw it out. One side is gonna be burnt and the other side is gonna be partially raw. Now, if you're talking about a bad city that has been hafak, you get an even more negative sense of the word. For instance, Lamentations 4.6. The punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom which was overthrown in a moment with no hand to help her. So here in Lamentations, the sin of the people is worse than Sodom. You know Sodom, right? The the archetype of evil in the Bible. And this overturning here in this verse, it's negative, right? It's, It's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. And it's talking about something being destroyed, overturned, or overthrown. But Hafat can also mean something turned over, from bad to good. So this word can describe something from bad into good or from bad into worse or good into bad. But then we see it used this third way in Psalm chapter 30. Psalm chapter 30, verse 11, you have turned, that's the word hafak, for me, my morning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me in gladness. So different meanings of this word based on the context and the nuance. Now, which meaning do you think Jonah meant when he preached that sermon and used the word hafak? And which meaning do you think God meant? What what actually happened? What actually happened? I mean, come on. that's, That's kind of funny, right? Jonah doesn't think it's funny. Jonah does not find any comedy in this at all. No, he, he's ticked, right? Jonah means halfback to be negative, but God meant it to be positive. He tries to run away, yet that didn't work, right? God's not letting Jonah off the hook. He's not letting him get away with anything. So Jonah tries to run away from God's first call, and it doesn't work. He tried to then go to Nineveh and engage in some sort of like prophetic sabotage, right? Give them as little information as possible to ensure that the fire would come down from heaven. And that doesn't even work. This is a brilliantly told story here. God has turned what Jonah intended for evil into good. Wow. His spirit used that five-word sermon to bring people into repentance and to find grace for their life. And Jonah is angry. He's mad. He's ticked off. But God isn't done with him yet. Chapter four, verse six, and the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Now, this is the first time in this whole book that we see Jonah happy. It's the first time. I mean, we're almost done, right? We're in the last chapter, halfway through it, and we finally see Jonah maybe crack a smile. 
But in verse three, he was so angry, he wanted to die, right? And now he's very happy, very, very happy. But then, the next day, God prepared a worm, a little bitty worm. And it so damaged the plant that it withered. I love the progression in this story. First, God sends a huge storm, and then a huge fish, and then a medium-sized plant, and then a little itty-bitty tiny worm. And verse 8, and it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. I'm cringing because I'm seeing prophetic talk for uh, next week at camp meeting. (laughs) I'm glad you thought that was funny. (laughs) Then he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Wow. So here is Jonah's progression. Oh, it will be better for me to die than to live. And God's like, wait, I thought you were just happy. No, I want to die. No, now I'm very happy. No, I want to die. It's better for me to die. It's quite, it's comical, right? It's kind of comical here. He's acting sort of like a two-year-old in a grocery checkout line. I'm convinced that the people who designed modern store checkout lines, um, that they set a goal to make parents of little kids miserable, right? I mean, especially little boys, because what are the options? You know, on one side, you've got all the magazines with the scantily clad women. And so, you know, you want to turn your, you know, your little boy's eyes away from that. But then what's on the other side? A literal wall of sugar, right? <laughs> That's the choice that we have. And so you, you, you direct his view away from the magazines. He sees the candy. And maybe he grabs one in victory. He grabs it off the shelf and he's thinking, this is the best day ever. This is awesome. This is amazing. And then you take the candy bar out of the child's hand and now he's just, you know, a puddle on the floor. This is terrible. This is miserable. This is the worst day ever. And so as a parent, I mean, what are you to do? You simply can't win. And that's how I read the story of Jonah. I'd rather die than live with a God like you. I mean, in a sense, that's what Jonah is saying. That's pretty rough. But oh, this plant, this is nice. This is great. I love this. This is a great day. Oh no, the plant has withered. This is terrible. I want to die. Oh, Jonah, Jonah, Jonah. He's acting ridiculous. I I think that we can all see that. And then in verse nine, then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. Stubborn as always. So he couldn't get Jonah to own up to the question, is your anger showing, uh, is your anger at showing grace to your enemies, is that legitimate? Jonah stonewalled God right? He ignored the question. He walked outside of the city. But now God tries a different tactic, this small plant tactic. (laughs) And what is Jonah's response? Is Is your anger unto death about a plant legitimate, God asked? Good question. This should help, hopefully, help Jonah realize how irrational he's being. But that's not what happens. Of course it's right for me to angry, you know what? I'm justified in being so angry that I want to die. 
That's how I feel, God. All my cards are laid out on the table. And we're left here thinking, wow, Jonah, you're too far gone. Jonah has lost it. He is beyond reason, yet God still doesn't give up on Jonah. Because God, remember the things that uh, Jonah was angry about a few minutes ago. God is gracious, he's compassionate, he's slow to anger, abounding in love and kindness. He's committed to Jonah, just like he's committed to you and to me. God is going to work this out. And in verse 10, it says, but the Lord said, you've had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. God is like, you've shown so much compassion and emotion over this plant. You didn't make it grow. It hasn't even been in your life very long and you're this emotionally attached. So let's just pretend, Jonah, that your emotions connected with this plant are legitimate. God continues, and should I not pity Nineveh? that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? The end. That's the end of the story. (laughs) I mean, isn't that kind of strange? We want to know how Jonah responds. I want to know what he says. I want to know what he does next. How does this story wrap up? But to make that our main focus is to miss the whole purpose of the book. Because this story was never about Jonah in the first place, was it? The story is about us. The real question is, how is this story a word of God to his people? And the best question we should be asking is, how am I living in response to God's question? How am I living in response to God's question? Because that's what's happening here. Jonah is this ridiculous caricature of people who grasp the scandal of God's grace, that God loves our enemies as much as he loves us. And when that sinks in, especially when maybe we have a fresh wound from an enemy, and we're struggling with issues of forgiveness, that's when, once again, we get wailed on by this little book. This chapter packs a punch, a strong, strong punch. Are you feeling it yet? Here's what God is trying to do. He's trying to get Jonah to wake up. He's been asleep at the wheel of his spiritual journey. Jonah clearly thinks the Ninevites are the worst, most wretched, most hard-hearted people in the world. But of course, in the story of Jonah, who's the most hard-hearted person? It's Jonah. It's Jonah. And God is gently trying to get him to see that truth. Jonah, I mean, don't you see what's happening here? Yes, you are a part of the covenantal people, and that's cool, but that doesn't for a second excuse your religious hypocrisy, or your superiority complex. You're just as broken and lost and misguided as they are, Jonah. Don't you see that? Shouldn't I be concerned about them 
and their animals in the same way that I'm concerned about you. And so the story takes us to this understanding. God loves our enemies. And most of us are probably thinking, yeah, I get that. I mean, that's, that's not too tough of a pill to swallow. But is it possible that if God loves and forgives our enemies, that he expects us to do the same? This is one of the most fundamental core issues of the gospel. Forgiveness of one's enemies. That's what God did for us at the cross, right? We were made enemies of God. And at the cross, we became friends. We became sons. We became daughters. Jesus put it this way. He said, but I tell you, hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And how do we react? Most of the time, how do we react? Oh, that's very nice and admirable of you, Jesus, but I'm straight up not gonna do that. I've gotta get even, right? I've gotta get my revenge. That's what's going to make me feel better about this situation. Yet that was Jesus's whole announcement about the kingdom of God, that there was a different way, a better way, a new option to take in life. It's a story where people have made themselves enemies of God by their selfishness, hard-heartedness, and hateful attitudes. Some of us have become relational wrecking balls in the lives of others. Some of us have fallen asleep at the wheel of our spiritual journey. Some of us have gone down, down, down into sin and apathy. Some of us are wearing seaweed crowns, sitting on the throne of our life, Deceiving ourselves into believing that we have everything under control and we have all the right answers. Some of us hate our enemies and we even go so far to wish ill upon them. Rejoice when calamity comes their way. We all do these things. We are all guilty. Yet the gospel story gives us hope. We can be fully reconciled to God and to other people By the power of the Spirit of God, we can change. And we aren't asked to change on our own. You know, God is there to help us. He's the type of God, as we've been talking, who is gracious, patient, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. A God who loves to relent from sending calamity. If there's one place in the world where this train of spiral humans wronging each other and responding to wrong with other wrongs, if there's a place where that ends, where it stops, it's the cross. It's the cross. And the community of people that form around the cross are to live differently. Differently. Not because we think we're better, but because we have been shown grace and compassion, we've experienced that. And we want others to experience it as well. So what Jonah chapter four is doing and what Jesus often did was deconstructing our idea of what an enemy is. Jonah has clearly stereotyped and demonized the Ninevites. He's done this in his mind. He thinks they are the bad guys yet they are the ones to quickly turn their hearts to God. 
He is the bad guy, but he's so self-deluded that he can't see that fact. And how often do we do that with our enemies? For clarification, when I say enemies, I mean any person or people group that has wronged you, that has wronged someone that you care about, or someone who is hard for you to be around because of their annoying traits or toxic personality, and you just can't deal with them. And it's totally okay to struggle in this way, but what do you do with the repulsion and those negative emotions that well up in your heart? And what most of us tend to do is we, we fixate, right? We fixate on that thing that they did to us, that bad thing, that negative thing that they did to us. And so we take this complex human being that has a story, a complicated story, a family of origins, a crazy life, and probably people that they've wronged, but then other people that have wronged them, and we strip them down to that one thing that they did wrong to us. We lay awake at night replaying that scene over and over and over, becoming more and more angry and becoming more and more hateful towards that person. And then, of course, since we were the ones who were wronged by them, we paint ourselves as the opposite of them, the complete opposite in every way. They are all that's bad in the world, and we are all that's good. But I keep bringing us back to this point. Who is the story of Jonah really about? Is it just about God and the people of Nineveh, or is it about God and his own people? He's trying to bring his own people around to open their eyes, open their hearts to how messed up they are and that they need grace just as much as everybody else. God has intentionally brought Jonah into contact with his enemies, not by accident, but precisely because he wants to teach Jonah something. So now we come to the title of the sermon, Learning from Our Enemies. Think about this. How many of us have thought that if that hateful person, that enemy, that toxic personality just wasn't in our life, then we would be able to follow Jesus and live a much happier life? And chapter four of Jonah comes in and echoes this question. Could it be that that person is in your life as a divine invitation for you to grow and mature in your experience of God's grace? Could God be trying to teach us something through our enemy? Now that is a sobering thought. And it makes me think of this quote from Walter Wink. It says, the gift our enemy may be able to bring us to see aspects of ourselves that we cannot discover any other way than through our enemies. Our friends seldom tell us these things. They are our friends precisely because they are able to overlook or ignore this part of us. The enemy is thus not merely a hurdle to be leapt on the way to God. The enemy can be the way to God. We cannot come to terms with our shadow except through our enemies. Wow. So here's your homework. At some point this week, I want you to go and sit down and write down all of the things that you hate about your enemy. Write down all those bad characteristics, those annoying personality traits, all the terrible things that they have done to you. 
And I know some of you are thinking like, ooh, this is going to be fun. Get it all out there. You know, they're jealous, they're rude, they lie, they're self-centered, they're greedy, they're a know-it-all. Just get it all out there. And then once you are finished, stop and pray. Remember that God is there in your presence, okay? So just, just be honest, be honest. And ask yourself, which of these things that I've just written down have I been guilty of? Have I ever displayed this type of behavior? And then it's really up to you. It's just a matter of whether you're going to be like Jonah or not. Oh, I've never been rude before. I've never acted like a know-it-all. I mean, like, really? Really? The first step towards loving our enemy is recognizing the common humanity, the common brokenness that we all share. The first step, wow. This is clearly where God was leading Jonah. Could this be where God is leading us to? As an individual, as a people, as a church, as Christians. Could it be that this person, this enemy is in our life precisely because God's inviting us into a deeper experience in his grace? Something to think about. Our loving, gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this book. We thank you for this book of Jonah. Though it has wailed on us, though it has beat us up some, we see Jesus in this book. We see love, we see mercy, we see compassion, but we also see ourselves. We see our ridiculous attitudes, our hateful views of our enemies whenever we look at Jonah. But Lord, this is not written to condemn us. This is written to remind us that we can change. This is written to show us that there is a better way. Lord, we don't know exactly how Jonah responded. We don't know exactly what he did next. But Lord, now we can pick up and finish the story. May we love our enemies in the same way that you love them. As sinners in need of a savior, Lord, this isn't easy, but we give you our hearts, we give you our mind, and we give you permission to do whatever it is necessary to change us, even if it means sending more enemies into our life. We ask for your spirit, and we know that with it, we can change, and we can take this gospel to the entire world. And we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. 